Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. My name is Jared Barker, just keeping the host seat warm for an unfortunately sick Matt Walsh this week. Joined by Jake Michaels and as always, champion darters Christian Jolly. Jake Walshy assures me he's alright, just a little bit of a sniffle. He didn't celebrate too hard, party too hard when Carlton finally won a game. You, you reckon he's out golfing or something, don't you? He might be. <laughs> He thinks he works hard, but no, no, he's, sure. he's uh, he does work very hard. So um, we'll cut him some slack. He's he's usually here, uh, firing on all cylinders. Uh, good to have you here, though. We don't do too many episodes together. Thank you. No, we don't. No, enjoy enjoy your company. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, you didn't celebrate too hard either, did you? Carlton winning a game finally. Um, funnily enough, we obviously beat. I say we. Um, I get to say we when uh, we haven't won quite a few weeks. But um, I was actually on the Gold Coast. Um, the opposite of where we were playing, I guess, or the team we were playing down here, and uh, didn't get to watch it live, so watched it later, and uh, yeah, it was good. Good second quarter. Where's mm. that been for seven weeks? Not sure, but I'm pretty sure all our listeners know that there's three Carlton supporters on this podcast, so maybe as the lone magpie, I've been brought in to just bring you all back to, down to <laughs> earth a little bit, but uh, plenty to get to, even though it's a bye week, we will talk about what the Blues did differently, the underwhelming Suns and the Dockers, the Tigers' resurgence under McWalter, and uh, we'll talk the art of tackling too and potentially who is the best tackler in the competition. Mm. But first things first, something you noticed from the weekend. Christian, we'll start with you. Yeah, probably one thing I noticed is there's three teams remaining uh, in the competition that the game result has stayed the same at three-quarter time till it has at the end of the game in all of their games this year. So West Coast, when they've been behind at three-quarter time... Hard to hard to overcome the 60-point yeah, deficit. They're 0 and 12, and when they've been in front at three-quarter time, 1 and 0. So pretty obvious one. North, uh, the other obvious one, 0 and 12 when they're behind at three-quarter time, 2 and zip uh, when they're ahead at three-quarter time. So I've taken Carlton out of this one. They, they almost make the case, except they had a draw in round one, which sort of yeah. just clouds the numbers. Mm-hmm. But Brisbane's the other, actual, the other one. So as I said, North, West Coast down one end of the ladder... Brisbane are actually set zero and four when they're behind um, at three quarter time, and nine and zip when they're up at three quarter time. So we're down to those three remaining teams. Right. Uh, yeah, just sort of a one to watch for Brisbane, just whether they can uh, reverse a result in the, in the in the final quarter if they're behind at three quarter time. That's interesting. Just trying to think off the top of my head, the games that they have lost and the ones they have been behind at three quarter time, if, the, if there've been significant margins or not. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, yeah, probably not a great sign. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, again, nine, they're still nine and zip when they're ahead, so if they have the have a good first three quarters, yeah. they're okay. Mm. Uh, something I noticed, Tim Taranto, so he's the he's the hottest player in the comp, everyone's telling me now. Um, he's had a great season. There's a bit of talk. He, he might not be the best ball user in the game. I don't necessarily subscribe to that because I think we've seen some of the great inside midfielders, not saying he's in this company, but Patrick Dangerfield and uh, Nat Fife not, just not be great uh, ball users by nature of being uh, tackled and trying to get the ball away and the last couple of games he's played in the wet the thing I've noticed though in the wet and it probably is highlighted more in the wet is the fact that he kicks the ball off the ground I I reckon more than any player I've ever seen in the game so I asked Christian to check that and that's right yeah and I, I do remember we did it again I don't have the numbers in front of me from what we did I think last year or two years ago we looked at about a five year uh sample size and he was on top and he's still on top this year so he's had 31 ground kicks this year eight more than any other player um and he's as i said when we looked at it in the past he was always a good ground kick player but i think he's joined the perfect team for ground kick so he's joined richmond who also got 
himself. Nankervis, who's third in the competition. Liam Baker's sixth, and uh, Shai Bolton's also in the top 20. So you've got four of the top 20 ground kick players this year. We know Richmond just like to keep taking ground, keep knocking the ball in front, and that's what Taranto's probably excelled in his and, whole career. And 13 of them in the last two weeks. 13 of those ground kicks have come in the last two weeks, which is a crazy high number. Mm. Well, was it three of the top five of Richmond, did you say? Uh, three of the top six and four of the top 20 in the end, yeah. So, yeah, Nank is also third, mm. so... There you go. Good pick-up by you. Oh, okay. you're welcome. Can't say I actually noticed that, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, from me, probably not from the weekend, but more yesterday, it was reported that Essendon were entertaining Ooh, the idea. What do, you, or, what do you make of this? Uh, I'm not too sure about it. This is what I'm going to say. So they're investigating uh, the idea of changing its their logo. So if you think about the Essendon logo, the big red riding Essendon with a, an the aircraft bomber. plane um, below it. And yeah, it's supposed to be as part of a potential rebranding. They're suggesting it might be offensive, Um it could be insulting in this day and age as well. I'm just, I'm thinking. I'm, I, I question that again. I was fast. listening to on radio and I heard someone else question it as well. I think from someone within the club, it's the oldest logo currently around. So you know, brands and logos and marketing they usually mm. update their logo every five to ten years. Essendon's have been since the mid '90s, which doesn't seem like too long for me, but it is the oldest logo. Mm. It just hasn't had a revamp. So. I, I think they're just doing due diligence. It's time to remarket. And I think everyone sort of jumped on that it might be because of offensive, you know, because it's offending people. Or it's but who's a, it offending? Yeah. Exactly. I don't, I don't think that is part of Essendon's thing. I think that's just media I hope that's not the reason. I think Essendon are just looking at it going, well, we've had the, this logo for 25, 30 years. It's, trying, it's time to update. They're not, yeah. they're not looking at changing the name from what they've said, not changing the name, not changing the colours, just changing that one logo, but the problem- which they did for a year. They did it for their 150th anniversary. That's right. right. That so they 150th have had logo, logo was a nice logo as well. I'm a preview to what conversations they'll have what research they'll do like what stakeholders they'll lean into and talk to to come to a decision but um and i don't know what the fans think either if they end up changing deciding to change that lo- the logo the, the bomber plane logo mm. then what are they going to change the team moniker no no that's too? what i'm saying Every logo logo thing, collingwood yeah. has changed their logo in the last 20 years carlton has changed but, but their my logo point is, what's just... offensive about the current that's what if, I, if it's I, an it's offensive just baffling issue. to me. Yeah. If it's an offensive issue, which I've seen some people bring up, but I just think there's there's bigger things to be offended by in 2023 than an aeroplane on a logo. So, uh, for, look, I hope that. <laughs> well said. I know. I just hope that they don't change it for for those reasons because yeah. I think no matter what logo you have, there's mm, be strange one. People that like it, people that don't like it. So I'm not an Essendon fan, but keep your logo, will you? Um, getting into the main agenda, we've already touched on a little bit of a Richmondy stuff via Tim Taranto, but Christian, the Tigers are on an absolute roll at the moment. They're 3-1 and one under Andrew McWalter. We all know Damian Hardwick left his post uh, about a month ago now, but what's happened? They look rejuvenated. They look a different team. All of a sudden, they're a finals chance. They are. And quick question before you, you jump in. If... if lot of ifs if they go on a massive run and they win the premiership this year does Damien Hardwick get credit how much does he how much credit does he get if they make a massive run after he leaves and he'll they... get 100 percent of it because it wouldn't have happened if he didn't leave so it was because of him <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> that was actually one of the other things I noticed though seeing him applaud like just there at the 90s I was thinking there's never ever been another coach to go and support his team in the same season yeah and we put on this like every other coach usually. I sacked thought he was over in away. Denver or something. It was just an unusual look. It was like that <laughs> was trip. their coach three weeks ago, and now he's just a fan in the yeah. stand. You've never seen that before. But in terms of what they've done, they've they've made some very you know Cochin back into the middle. Um, 
again, they had Marlon Pickett the first two or three weeks that McWalter was moving around into the midfield and the forward line. So he's, he's made a few positional changes. But overall, that there's not big sweeping changes to the game style. Still very heavily uh, high handball meters gain. Still doing everything that they usually did. It's their forward line efficiency. So under Hardwick, the first 10 rounds, they were 18th for scoring per inside 50. Now they're first. So they've sort of, they're, they're getting fewer inside 50s and they're losing the time in forward half. So they're, seems to be keeping their forward line more open and, and just scoring a lot How does better. It change so dramatically. Exactly, I feel but like you we look wouldn't. at you look at kick to handball ratio and kicking this it hasn't changed dramatically. It just seems it's to just be working is, for them. Yeah. yeah. It's kinda like we talk about score efficiency and that sort of stuff where you can be the worst team for five weeks and then all of a sudden just like that you're the best team. And it's like you're looking at what the actual answer is and how it's how what's caused the turnaround, but there really isn't anything. And and that's the number it boils down to. So Again, under Hardwick, they scored from 39% entries. Uh, under McWalter, that's 49%. So they've increased 10% down one end. And at the other end, they were uh, conceding a score 42% of the time under Hardwick to the opposition. That's down to 36% of the time. So it's almost a 16% swing at, at both the bookends. That's just helped them get the results. Is that a bigger board. jump than you would normally see for a team who needs to try and change things up mid-season? As I said, to go from 18th to, to number one in that stat um, in a period of time is, is huge. And it sort of shows, again, usually a lot of that will come down to... The, a really identifi- identifiable change in ball movement. They're kicking the ball more or they're, they're handballing them all, more, more in the forward half, something like that. More I look at Richmond, as I said, there have been a couple of games. The Richmond game, oh, sorry, the Fremantle game was very different to the Giants game. Mm. So they haven't had two exact games either under McWalter. But when you just compare the two numbers, there is nothing that stands out that says, okay, McWalter likes them to kick the ball more or handball the ball more than Hardwick did. That's sort of staying the same. It's just the efficiency in, in the value they're getting from their forward line. Yeah, well, they're only two points out of the eight right now and a big part of the way Richmond are playing is obviously Tim Taranto who we already spoke about but his last five games he's averaging 35 disposals he's kicked nine goals six and a half tackles nearly eight clearances so I'm going to throw to you Jake because Mm. um, you're the Brownlow man here you'd obviously do a Brownlow predictor on on our website ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL if you want to have a look updated every week should he be leading it right now will he be leading it right now well he is he's tied first um 19.5 19.5 off the top of my head, along with Petrarca and Zach Butters, um, with Nick Dacos just behind on 19. He has had a amazingly consistent season, um, Tim Taranto. And there's shades of kind of a bit of Ollie Wines' Brownlow year and uh, Matt Prittis' Brownlow year. Team not necessarily dominating and the kind of players that probably don't get the recognition quite like Petrarca and Bontempalli and Cripps and these guys that the media do love to talk about that you see them um, you know, bursting from stoppage and all that sort of stuff. But his numbers have been phenomenal and it's been consistent and that's how we've seen a lot of players in the past go on and win that award by doing it week in, week out. So, yeah, his season this year has had 32 disposals per game, seven clearances, 407 metres gained and seven tackles per game. So I've gone to look at players that have averaged 30 disposals, six clearances, 400 metres gained and seven tackles in, a, in across a season. He'll be the second one if he finishes this way behind Tom Rockliffe, who's not a previous Brownlow winner or anything, but another sort of another guy that could sort of, as I said, get the ball 30 times, still tackle and, and win it from clearances. So mm. 
Yeah, Taranto, you talk about the last five weeks. I think only Gary Gary Ablett rivals those sort of numbers across a five-week period with mm. um, a, an average of 34 disposals and a couple of goals per game. I think 175 um, disposals, nine goals in five weeks. Yeah. yeah that's just unheard of. Yeah, so Huge. yeah, that's. Uh, I think you've got to go back about six, seven years since Gary Ablett sort of put up similar numbers. But across a whole season, as I said, only Tom Rockliffe has done better in, in sort of that, that real inside. Do we know what, do you know what Gaz polled in, those, in that stretch of games? No, I'd have to, yeah, again, I'd have to look, but... Mm. I'd say like, similar to Cripps winning it last year, that real in and under contested ball winning midfielder. That what's well, just Taranto the fact is. that he does everything. Like we we know that he wins a lot of the ball. We know he's he's got a mi- good mix of contested and uncontested possession. He tackles well. He's one of the top five pressure act players in the game. Uh, clearances and the thing thing is, it's it's we know Richmond have match winning players, Dusty and Bolton and Lynch when he's there. Rewalt like they've got a lot of players that are cap- fully capable of winning games off their own boot and polling Brownlow votes. But no one is close to the level of consistency that Taranto's had this year. And, you know, you look at his worst game, like if, I know disposals aren't everything, but just off the top of my head, I think his worst game was, might have been 28 disposals, a goal, eight clearances, five tackles or something like that. And it's like, that's his worst game? He could be polling in, in the vast majority. It's not a bad, bad game to have but uh, yeah it's it's. I think with, with Richmond as a whole and he's obviously a big part of the way they're playing right now but it's funny what a new fresh voice can actually do for a club when there is a change of um, it's, not, it's not a new, yeah, new environment the, but that new voice that comes in plays yeah. a playing off a blank canvas it's just funny how it works it's but, not the first time we've seen no. this in the, go back you know in the last six seven years we've seen Patrick Dangerfield move clubs win a Brownlow we've seen Tom Mitchell move clubs win a Brownlow we've seen Lockie Neal move clubs and win a Brownlow mm-hmm. like and, and I think that the players have, I think there's a few players that have gone on record said their job now is to get Andrew McWalter to be their head coach next year. So they're they're playing to sort of audition for him to get the top role. So I think they're all going in with the you know they're all collectively behind the guy that's leading them at the moment. Yeah, I think the jury is still out. Look, they they are coming. I think they got Hawthorne still in the run home, West Coast still in the run home. They'll be thereabouts um, in the finals mix, obviously. But they got Brisbane at the Gabba this Thursday night, I believe, which is a massive test. I think we'll know a lot more about Brisbane. Uh, this week, but going no, from they're on after, buy yeah, this week. after the buy, and yeah, after the buy, sorry. The next week. game's Brisbane, and then at the yeah, Gabba. Thursday yeah. at the Gabba, um, big game, huge game, huge game. Uh, but moving on from a team who's on the up to a team who continually lets us down, the Gold Coast Suns. They're <laughs> six and seven with the percentage of ninety four point seven. Now it's just here a week ago, or was and it this two is what I want to say. Every year we talk about that they get on two or three game win streak. We all get sucked in. We go, oh, the Suns. You know what? They, they might make finals this year. Then they let us down with one bad performance. Is this a knee jerk reaction to 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 rule them out of contention now because of one bad performance, or are we still going to have some sort of hope? Well, for me, this is this is the period of the. The period that you know that's let them down in the previous years. So whether they can turn it around this year is yet to be seen. So rounds one to fourteen across uh, the last five or six years, not great. But round one to fourteen, twenty-eight wins and fifty losses, one draw. So a winning percentage of thirty-five percent in those opening fourteen rounds. So you know not great, but sort of better than what I'm about to say is post round fourteen. There's seven wins and thirty-two losses for an eighteen percent winning percentage. So they've only won seven games after round fourteen in the last five or six years. Uh, six years it is. So this is the time. Yeah, if they great. start to lose two or three in a row, you could almost put a line through them if they lose the next two or three. But they haven't ended seasons well in the past. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how you can have any confidence. Uh, it it probably is a knee-jerk reaction, but it's also probably a fair reaction to have because, as Christian said, we've seen this 
literally year after year after year. And the, the issue for me is they haven't been in the top eight this year. So yeah. to, for them, they have to take another step and improve and get into the top eight. They've never shown previously that they've been able to take a step up as the season gets they're older. They're a better team this year than they were last year. They had 10 wins last year. I thought, again, I was I, I was big on them for that, that four or five week period. I think they did get their signature and they had an identifiable game style, that contest, and they were hard to play against. And they probably still will be that. But as I said, I, I was always a cynic up until because I wanted to see how they would go from round basically round 13, 14 mm. onwards. They've already got one one loss uh, post round 13. But yeah, looking at post round 14, that has been their problem. And it's been every year. There's, there's They've been pretty good, I reckon, from about round 6 to 12, we usually see the best stuff of Gold Coast each year, but they mm. just haven't been able to maintain it. I just even when they're going well, even their periods, of, you know, where they have been winning games, you just feel like this type of performance is always around the corner. Every four or five weeks, you feel like you just get a shocker from the Suns. Yeah, I didn't know they'd get beaten the way that. So we'll go into the game later, and it was a lot from stoppages. But that was the one thing they could hang their hat on that that you couldn't burst out of packs against Gold Coast and, and Carlton, who haven't been doing it all year, were just able yeah. to open them up. So. It was an unusual way for... Again, it was a weird way for them to be beaten because it was probably their strength of their game was their contest and clearance work, which got them to the position they were in, and it just all fell apart on the day. As much as I've um, been beating the, the Noah Anderson drum about how good he is, and Matt Rowell as well, they are guns and they're only getting better. They have missed Miller, who's Massively. been out since... Just his about presence. ...around five or six. Um, you know, it's they don't have a huge amount of depth through the midfield. So him going out, and I mean, he talking about Brownlow winners. He he nearly won it last year. So um, you can't underestimate how good that guy is as a two-way midfielder. Um, and to have him missing through this period of the season has been yeah, it's tough. So I think when you add him back in, I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom for the Suns. But yeah, it's just hard to see if they can take that next step to be in the eight, as you say, rather than being sort of. You want to be, you want to go into the last month of the season still alive, whereas the, the Suns have never been in that position, where they've gone into the like I know mathematically they might have been possible to make finals. They've never gone into the last month of a year where their season is legitimately still alive. Mm. You are right, but it's more just frustrating because we know that they've done this year after year, but we think they're in contention and they have this sort of a, a dry spell and uh, let all their fans down and, and burn everyone that actually rode on him for a little bit but they were just destroyed and you talk about Tuk Miller who's the player that they should be turning to when they do get destroyed out of the middle like they did against Carlton especially that second quarter I know we'll dive into the numbers as shortly. in who's the, who's the who's the leader, who's the leader? Is, it, like? is it David Swallow is it is it Wits well having Miller there would, would help does he say guys we got a bloody lift here but they just didn't it didn't seem like they had anyone to do that no, and I mean, that's part of being a, a younger team, I guess. They don't have a lot of um, experienced players. Even Miller, Miller's only 26 or 7. Like he's, he's not like he's a super, super experienced player as well. Like, yeah. So they don't have... They are a young team, particularly through the midfield. They're in the mix. They're, still, they're in that middle ladder logjam, if, if you like to call it. Call it sorry. They're not playing finals. Well, they're not playing finals this year. Are you going to rule that out straight away, right now? Yeah, I am. I think we've seen enough. Like I, I like watching the Suns. I've been impressed with some of their performances this year. I think they've got they've got some great players that will be some of the best mids in the league in a couple of years' time. But they're not making finals this year. They're just not. They're only one game out, and we are going to speak about those teams that are still in finals contention. What's going to change from the top eight from now to the end of the year? I think it's pretty clear the top four is the top four. I think everyone can agree on that. I'd go as far as saying the top three is in its own tier. Brisbane's in its yeah. own second tier. They're the fourth best team. But then from fifth, 
all the way down to 13th. There's only two games separating St. Kilda and Fremantle, and Carlton's only half a, go- a game behind Frio and a game and a half outside of the eight. So who do you think is going to miss out from here? Are, are there any changes from this point to the end of the season, Jake? I think there are. So if, if you're talking about um, the team that I would rule out down to sort of, I mean, you could almost throw Sydney in at, at 15th on 20 points, only really two two wins out, which is crazy to think. I think Gold Coast is, is the one I can, I'd can i be happy to put a line through. I mean, there's probably a few down there. Frio, I, I haven't really rated this season as well. I've been really disappointed, particularly that performance on the weekend was dire. Um, but I, I truly do believe that Geelong and Richmond will both find a place in the eight. I know that's going against the grain of what we've seen in, in years gone by where it's almost impossible for one change, let alone two. Uh, around this stage, you're, you're still, a, I think, slightly above one change could happen. But yeah... But- Two very rarely three would would almost be impossible, unheard of. Given given that fifth to, down to where Geelong is at tenth is just two games, um, Geelong have a pretty favourable run home for for a team that was obviously won the flag was a top six team getting a tougher draw, um, and Richmond I think, like we just spoke about, I think they're you know they're starting to get some players back, they're starting to find a, a you know a game style that is actually working for them and they're winning games, so I I, I can easily see those two making it and. Do I think Essendon and St Kilda and uh, the Bulldogs and Adelaide are they guaranteed to pl- play finals? Definitely not. I've seen weaknesses in all those teams. So it's really just a top four year. Yeah, I think what you said before is spot on. I think the top three have really separated themselves. Brisbane, if Brisbane were play get to play at the Gabba every week, then I'd throw them in the in that four as well. But obviously they don't. Um, we've seen them continually struggle away from Brisbane. But yeah, it's Port Adelaide, Melbourne, and Collingwood that are the they're the ben- those three teams are clearly the benchmark right now. Mm. And then it's St Kilda in, in fifth, as we already said. But are, they, are the, they the fifth best team? They're not the fifth best team. team. No. St Kilda and, is not the fifth best team. And for me, they're the ones that I'm probably on the watch for that probably won't make finals. Um, I mean, I'm probably looking at anyone below Geelong not make not making finals either, so GWS down. But from the teams that are in, I think St Kilda is most vulnerable for me. And again, a lot of it comes to... Just their last six, so they win loss win loss since round four. After after sort of starting four and zip, they've they've gone win loss each round, conceding sort of twenty two more points per game in the last six weeks than they were the first six weeks. They, they were so highly strung and uh, sort of relying on that perfect structure under under Ross Lyon. So they were very low for applying pressure on the ball carrier. Number one for intercept marks, conceding four hundred disposals per game, which is a lot of the ball, but just letting teams do nothing with it. Now I think teams are starting to figure it out, find a few cracks in it. As I said, 22 more points per game they're conceding. They've gone from number one for intercept marks in the first six weeks to 17th the last few weeks. The teams have been able to avoid those chop-off players. So I think they, they were just so... That that game plan was working so perfectly for them mm. for six weeks. Now they've sort of got to recalibrate and find and come again. And look, at the, at the start of the year, no, I don't think many people had tipped St. Kitter in the top eight. So I can see them falling off, but I still think well, that they similar to what happened last year. With and, and I was big on, as a cult sport, I was big on standing up for Michael Voss at this time last year, saying, I think Ross Lyon's got to coach for a 2024 premiership. 2023 is just a bonus. Whatever happens here, yes, you'd want to make finals sitting in fifth. But if they miss out on finals, I wouldn't be jumping off the bandwagon or anything. But just looking at personnel and the way teams are playing against them in the last few weeks, they're, they're the iffy one for me. And any of those teams that do scrape in, so Richmond six wins, Geelong six wins, GWS six wins, Gold Coast six wins, Frio six wins, Carlton even five and a half wins, so they're still there, thereabouts. Any mm. of those teams just scraping into eighth can easily win a final because I don't think the teams that they're going to be playing who finish in fifth or sixth or seventh are actually that much better. 
the fifth team isn't that much better than the third team. No, no, hundred percent. If I Carlton, would... if sorry, Fremantle played St Kilda this this week, I mean, you're probably backing the Saints, but they're not going to be winning by a, <laughs> a, a lot. So I, I, I think, think it's it, pretty think clear that outside close. the top four, the the team that nobody would want to play come September is Geelong. Like I know they're tenth, I know they're not in there, but. Their team is not... They've had some injuries that they've had to deal with throughout the year, but if they can get anywhere close to full strength, their team is basically the same as what it was last year. They went on a 16-game winning streak and won a premiership without Joel Salwood. That's pretty much it. So they're going to get players back, and they're going to be a team that no one wants to play. And as I said, they've got a pretty good run home. They'll make. They'll be, they'll be in the eight. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, and no one will want to play them. Moving on. Now, we're going to talk tackling. A massive part of, of the game is the ability for players to apply that sort of pressure. Controversial and part of the game now. It is a very controversial part of the game, but still an important aspect of, of what players are doing in stopping their opponents. Uh, so we, we thought we'd we'd ask Christian to dive into tackling, what what it is, what constitutes a tackle, what's an effective tackle, uh, how do players lay effective tackles. Um, you've got some tackle efficiency numbers for us, mate. Take it away. Yeah, so we've spoken about pressure a, a lot on... on the podcast and i mean you see it all over the, the broadcast nowadays as well so pressure is you know there's a whole whole different lot like loads of pressure acts you could either be corralling someone chasing someone down from behind closing in on them from the front or physical pressure act so physical pressure act is when you've got physical contact onto a player so you've got hands on hands on them while they're they're kicking or handballing the ball um Basically, a tackle is an effective pressure act. So if you apply a physical pressure act and the player is able to get an effective disposal away, you won't get a tackle. You'll get a, you'll get a physical pressure act, you'll get a tackle attempt, but you won't actually get a tackle. So that's a lot of the times that where people are playing Dream Team or any of their fantasy footies. You see a guy, clearly grab a guy by his jumper, throw him to the ground, but the guy kicks a goal, he won't get a tackle. The guy you know, throwing the, 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 the opposition player to the ground won't be getting a tackle because the guy's already got an effective disposal away. Why so, is that? Why, why? Again, we've got physical pressure act. So a tackle had to affect the play. So a tackle either has to stop a disposal from happening, uh, create a stop it, you know, same sort of mm. thing, either dispossess a player, stop a disposal from happening, or clearly affect the disposal. So if you hit the target while someone's tackling you, you, you haven't done your job to the best ability. So is it a so pressure get, act? Yep, so you'll still get a pressure act. You'll still yeah. get, uh, you know, 3.7 to your pressure factor. Your pressure factor will look high, mm. but your actual tackle numbers will look low. So, again, tackle efficiency is just a good measure. And I know one of the early coaches, John Longmire, about four or five years ago, I know he set a benchmark of about 65%, and he looked at it that said, if Sydney players were tackling above 65%, they were going to win. If they were below 65%, they were going to lose. So hmm. I know a few clubs have used it, but it also uh, it caught my interest last year when Dan Butler, actually, I think his defence team actually used it um, in his tribunal case and sort of hmm. quoted that he had a good tackle efficiency and he was leading one of the leading forward 50 tackles in the competition. That was his job. So it sort of grabbed my interest and thought, oh, well, people are starting to look at it. So if you look at competition tackle efficiency i mean it hasn't changed much so i looked at 2017 we're at 65.8 percent tackle efficiency so uh two and two and three tackles basically stick we're at 64.5 percent this season so slightly lower so basically it means that players are actually still you know probably slightly better at getting an effective disposal away when they're being tackled um so again, that's probably one of the big changes of the game. I'd love to see tackle efficiency numbers in the 80s and 70s because I feel like if you tackle someone, it was either holding the ball or they turn it over, so mm. it'd be much higher. Whereas we're creating monsters with the ball that you know Dustin Martin, guys like that, that and Paddy Cripps that run into the tackler, get tackled, and then flick a handball out. Um, so I think tackle efficiency would be sort of lower in this part of the game than it would be 
30, 40 years ago, but it hasn't changed much in the last five or 10 years. So as I said, 64.5% is sort of where uh, the competition sits. If you, I've gone from 2017 to 2023 to look at player stuff. So basically, as I said, a physical pressure act, getting hands on a bloke when he's disposing the ball, that will count as a tackle attempt as well as missed tackles. So again, if you get two hands to a goal, get hands onto a guy in general play, i.e. Dustin Martin, who then brushes you aside, you fall over and Dustin Martin runs off, you'll get a missed tackle for that, which also comes into your tackle attempt numbers and, and, and affects your efficiency. So the basically, the if you look at 2017 to 2023, Jack Steele, first for tackle attempts and number one for tackles. So he's got a tackle efficiency of 67.7%. So you know, as I said, he, he tackles the most and he attempts to tackle the most. So is he the best tackler in the comp? It sort of remains to be seen as if you look at the strongest tackler or the best tackle efficiency player, it's actually Ed Kerno who tackles at an efficiency of 74% across the last eight, uh, six years. So you sort of see for the, for the role that he does, it mm. sort of makes sense, you know, it, and he's what a, he needs bit of a, a bit of a whipping boy at Carlton at some times. But again, I think that's why he's picked because he does do a tagging role. He can, he's got the fitness to run with someone, but he's also got the, tackling ability that when he is you know he draws a tackle he can actually affect the play down the other end of the scale is uh jack higgins has a tackle efficiency of 52 percent dom sheet at 53 percent and andrew gaff at 53 percent so just looking at jack higgins speaking of whipping boys <laughs> yeah so well jack higgins i don't think is one but looking at jack higgins the main problem with him is 35 percent of his tackle attempts the opposing player still gets an effective disposal away so jack mm. higgins can be holding onto a bloke but 35 percent of the time they still get uh, 35% of those attempts, they still get a, uh, uh, an effective handball or kick away, which is the highest rate of any what, player. What's an attempt? What's, what's an, so what's an physical... What do you have to do to attempt? So do you have said, to make contact with yeah, a player? Or do you have to... Yeah, make, make reasonable contact. So again, one finger on a bicep yeah. when a guy's kicking the ball, that's just closing pressure. So if you die for a player, you don't make contact. It's, that's just going to be closing or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. that, but that won't be a tackle attempt. A tackle attempt will be hands on the player. Or as I said, the other tackle attempt will be where you've got your hands to the player, they push you aside and keep running. So we, we do call missed tackles as well. So it's either at the point of disposal or during the possession where mm. you've missed the tackle. So the reason, yeah, Jack Higgins has a low tackle efficiency is because guys, are, he's sort of getting hands around the guy, but the, the defender or whoever's getting the ball away is able to hit the target. Uh, Dom Sheed's also, as I said, low for tackle efficiency. He's also at around 34.9% of the opposition's disposal are effective. So... That's the reason they've got a low tackle efficiency. Where Andrew Gaff's a little bit different. So he, 10% of his tackle attempts are actually missed tackles. So he goes to tackle a guy, gets two hands to him, they push him to the side and, and keep running. So that's, uh, it was in the sort of 25th highest of the top 300 players. Um, and third, uh, 6%, which is the 33rd highest, is a freeze against. So basically he either misses the tackle, Andrew Gaff, uh, and the guy is able to sort of, you know, break away and get more, more meters after it. Or when he does actually get two hands to a guy, he's giving away a t uh, free against sort of, you know, in the, in the top great. 30 of the thing. So that's why he has a low tackle efficiency. So, um, yeah, just looking at a few other players. So I looked at the highest percentage of, of tackle attempts that actually uh, result in a free against. Uh, and Jeremy Cameron, so basically the most violent tackler, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> See, Buddy Franklin so, would have been my pick. Yeah, and he's second. So uh, Jeremy Cameron at 12.5% of his tackle forwards. attempts end up being a free against. Lance Franklin's at 11.7%. Uh, and Charlie Dixon... No, he's, he's in the next category. So I was looking at Lance Franklin. So as I said, Jeremy Cameron's number one, but Lance Franklin, 12% of his tackle attempts are freeze against. But what he ranks number one is only 16% of his tackle attempts result in an effective disposal for the opposition. So as I said, 35% of Jack Higgins at one end of the scale, 
only 16% for Buddy. So if Buddy catches right. the opposition player, he's either going to hurt them and give away a free kick, or he's going to really mess up their disposal. So he's a strong and an aggressive yeah. tackler, and you can, you can picture you that can in the numbers. That, yeah. Charlie Dixon is second in that number. So mm-hmm. he's, he's not really high for the freeze against part Charlie Dixon. But again, when he tackles Reckless. you, you're not going to be hitting the target because <laughs> yeah. you're going to be throwing you to the ground. Mm. Um, so yeah, they're, they're the most sort of interesting ones. Another interesting player I found, just a quick one, Liam Ryan um, was sort of low for uh, tackle efficiency. So he he's missed 13.5% of his tackle attempts where he's just actually got hands to the bloke and fallen off. That's the fourth highest percentage of anyone. But he's got the third lowest percentage for freeze against. So he's almost tackling too gently for me. So he gets hands to the guy but gets brushed aside and he doesn't actually you know throw him into the ground and get a free against mm. but one thing that he does do well in out of the top 300 he's got the he's got the fifth highest percentage of winning a free kick from his tackles so he might miss him he might not actually affect the disposal too much and you might be able to get away from him but when he does catch the guy he's usually from behind to run down so he, he knows when ball. to tackle so i feel like he whether it's someone's you know is he a ninja type tackler? Like you just you don't when you don't know he's coming, he's going to yeah. get you. But if yeah. you're able to run at him and line him up, you're able to brush him aside a little bit. So ninja Ryan, it's fascinating stuff. I I want to know how is all of this data recorded? So this wouldn't be live during so the it's game, all, right? Yeah, yeah, this is all live. So this is merging our pressure number. So the pressure callers of our game are looking at every disposal, how much pressure was under. So they're saying, uh, and they. It's all in all in code. So when they say three, that means you've got physical pressure. So they're saying Jake's putting three. Three points of pressure on Christian. Oh, I'd hope a bit more than and that. Then the, and then the main call will be basically, has Christian had an effective disposal or not while Jake's putting the three on? And then back end will just merge those together saying, well, you've had a you've had a physical pressure attempt uh, on this disposal. Yeah. Was it effective? And this is in addition to every other thing that you're looking yeah, at. We're with looking the at disposal. missed tackle. So as yeah. I said, it's, it's all just, we're just calling individual uh, parts of the play, stats of the play. And then we our metrics are what linking to. So a kick... You know, mm. as I said, uh, you know, uh, if you kick it and get tackled, it'll look at whether the whether the tackle was a fi- uh, sorry the kick was effective or not to work out whether it's a tackle or an ineffective physical pressure attempt, if you like to call it that way. But then you've got the other ones. It's like we know that if the free kick's paid, we say was that a tackling free kick or was it just a general play? So you've yeah. won a free kick uh, for a higher tackle. Was it in a marking contest? Was it against the tackler? So that also. So once you get a free kick because you were trying to tackle that would also come into your numbers and bring your efficiency down so mm. yeah all done live and um, yeah all done for every single player across every game that's impressive stuff I, I do have a question though now that we're speaking tackling if two players tackle so it's like a two player gang tackle on an opponent and they win a free kick for holding the ball but the ball spills away and it's play on advantage yep do both players get yep. a tackle or who gets the free kick as well? Uh, so only one player will get the free kick, and that's an annoying one when it's advantage because we basically have to, as statisticians, work get, out. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit annoying. But both um, players will get awarded a tackle. Yep, and both yeah. players will get awarded a so tackle. That that's right? leading to a free kick. But there is sometimes where it's just like, oh, there's a free kick paid. Yeah, we'll usually again we'll try to work out who tackled him first. Sometimes it's just, sometimes you look at it and go, oh, the guy tackled him first, mm. had him around the waist. But it was the guy that got him second that actually okay. won the free kick. So sometimes it's obvious for us, but sometimes yeah. when it's just two players, and it's rare, but sometimes you're just like, oh, we're going to give the free kick to this so, guy. Mm. So is it common to to give 
two players a tackle if two players are tackling one yes. player? Yes. So, and again, one of the big things we teach about tackling is you both have to have had an impact. So you'll see a lot of the times where one guy's wrapped up the opposition and player and another and guy their, comes. And, yeah. and basically, I call them a cuddle. So when I'm when I'm teaching training, I say, don't we don't have a stat for a cuddle. So if yeah. someone just comes and puts some arms around some blokes that are not going anywhere, yeah. that's not a tackle. I could have 10 tackles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Three players have dived on the ball and the fourth player just dives on top yeah. of all of them. That's not a tackle. You've got to actually be tackling... An, an identical player that has the ball and you've got to actually make an impact with the ball. So in the NFL, I know they do sort of like a half sack if two players will... Yeah. So mm. has there ever been, no, been well, any sort exactly. Of... That's what we sort of look at. You can, can you pay half, a free, you know, yeah. half the free four to him, half the free it's four like to him? It's like digging half a yeah, hole or something. Exactly. Like... We, we have looked at the half sack and worked out whether it has any relevance in AFL, but yeah, not yet. Interesting. No, very interesting stuff. Uh, new segment this year, obviously, when we look at the key stats from each, each game. Christian, you take a look at Every team, every game, pick out one stat that's notable about each club. Port Adelaide and Geelong, the power were well, there on, on a roll, aren't that they? Feels like an 11 age, in a row. It does, yeah. it does now. 11 in a row, uh, the Cats were pretty... Well, they looked quite lethargic, especially after quarter time. What happened in that game? Yeah, and again, it's, it's probably just pumping up Port even more. So they had plus 16 inside 50s across the night. That's the equal best against any team against Geelong this year. Second best against them since 2020. They had 14 more shots at goal, which is the second best uh, result against Geelong since 2021. The only other team to have more shots at goal in that time against Geelong was Melbourne in that preliminary final where they just tore them apart in 2021. Um, even the, there were 17 marks inside 50 to Port, only eight for Geelong, which is so plus nine in Port's favour. That's the best differential of any team this season. Um, and the biggest, sorry, but against Geelong this season, the biggest against them for three years. So again, just the, they actually beat up on last year's Premier. So I think a lot of people were impressed with Port Adelaide, but I sort of looked at it and said, yeah, they really did sort of beat Geelong in a lot of areas that, that Geelong don't usually get exposed heavily in. Yeah, right. Uh, Brisbane and the Swans, the, well, the Lions, the, all the uh, the talk and the, the conversation was the two players that they dropped uh, prior to the game, Jack Gunston and, and Daniel Rich. What would you make of all that? On their own accord. Uh, you reckon it was their own accord? I reckon it was... Uh, so Fagan came out... I read a read a quote from Chris Fagan on Sunday and he's basically sort of said he'd already messaged them and said, we need to yeah. chat. And I assumed it would have been a, the way it was. a meeting not, con, not it's a very upon by the players. Yeah, it's a situation, I, especially for... You might buy it if it was one, but two of them? Yeah, the mm. way it was sold to us last week, I pictured Chris Fagan sitting in his... De- in his at his desk and you guys on weren't the door up to and then some yeah. two people walk in that he wasn't expecting this was more like Daniel Rich wanted to talk about his form Gunston was in the next office so he called them both in the room together they had a big chat and they all decided that the mm. way that's that's the way Chris Fagan sort of selling it so I think it's more likely that's that's what yeah. happened as well but the Lions it opened up the door for Jasper Fletcher to debut he was pretty impressive as well and the Lions nice, got it done a nice goal. yeah mm. I'm I'm a big fan of Kyle Loman as well who they sort of took from uh, he's a bit country small forward and he had four score assists from his eleven touches he's just just a creative little forward who just needs a go. So again, it's good to see him put in a few mu- few new names. But yeah, their inaccuracy cost them across the night. So they had 13 more shots than the Swans, but won by just 16 points. So I looked at, I think I went back about seven years and looked at everyone that had exactly 13 more shots by the opposition. The average winning margin is 41 points. So basically sums yeah. up the game. They, they were seven goals better than the Swans, but only won by 16 points or so. Uh, Giants and the Dockers, that was shocking. One-way traffic, completely. Well, shocking, yeah, shocking from a Frio perspective. Oh, um, the Giants were superb, and they're in the mix now as well with finals. But Fremantle, you can almost are they put a line really? To it. Why not? The Giants are in the mix. 
they're one game out. They so, yeah. again, I, I think they are. I'm I think they've left their run a little bit too late, but I'm getting very very bullish on them. Well, for you were pretty hot on them at the start of this season. Yeah, right? I thought they'd go a bit better with with a. Uh, with the new coach this year, but I think they just yeah they took a little bit of little bit of time to get going. The last three weeks they've had two hundred and one inside fifties, which again sort of puts them only ten or eleven other teams have done that in a three week period. Had two hundred inside fifties, I think the most in a in a three week period is about two hundred and ten. So that orange tsunami that everyone's talking about really does exist. Gee. Um, and all those all the teams that have reached two hundred uh, inside fifties in a three week period have all played finals at the end of the year. So yeah, so I again. That sort of says that they should be playing finals and they're going well. But as I said, I think they left the run a little mm. bit too late. But there's a lot of evidence that a lot of teams that do well in one year start to sort of get their season together from round 13 onwards of the previous season. So mm. I'm, I'm starting to look at GWS now and sort of go, whatever they produce from round 13 to the end of the season will sort of show me what they're going to produce next year in their second mm. year under Kings. Yeah, one to watch. I think they can scare a few teams. Uh, the Tigers beat the Saints in a wet weather slog. Yeah, and it was. It was just being able to keep it. So we talk about Tigers. Uh, their signature was forward half play. I think they scored They scored 90 points for the game. 77 were from forward half chain. So they, they scored one goal, one from back half. Um, a few points from, you know, what's that? I think a goal from centre bounce. Mm. And 77 points from just locking it in their forward half and getting stoppages and intercepts. So Saints were stuck down their end. Um, yeah, they had they had nine forward fifty intercepts. You can look at it either way. Richmond had nine forward fifty intercepts, kicked four three, or you put the blame on St Kilda. Say so St Kilda turned it over in their defensive fifty nine times. Um, I think the first it took them four rounds. St Kilda turned the ball over nine times at the start of the year. So to do it in mm, one wow. game, Richmond just had it. Yeah, turned them and sort of made them look like a mess down back. And Carlton, well, they hammered the Suns, but it was really just that one quarter, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was, and it's the centre bounce clearance stuff. So across the game, it was nineteen seven from centre bounce clearances. Um, I think it was six goals in that second quarter from centre clearances alone, but nine goals for the match. So, uh, sorry, eight goals for the match. So they finished with eight two from centre bounce clearances. So uh, you know, big word you talk about when you're looking at longevity of a team is sustainable footy. Can you the way you're playing? Can you sustain that and, and bank on that every week? You can't bank on kicking eight goals from centre bounce clearances every week it's it's the equal fourth most ever scored from a centre bounce clearance uh, the most this I think this game just needs a mention every fortnight doesn't it it was uh, round 19 2011 Geelong versus Melbourne oh, where of course. Geelong scored 57 points from centre bounce clearances in that game it's so one you of those think games about, that just kind of breaks the record books because everything's always yeah, watched but because of that game whenever mm. something's compared to that game you know how bad or how easy it was that's how easy Carlton had it they were just able to waltz out of the middle for, uh, and for this is points. kind of where I was you know coming in as a as a Carlton supporter to the office it's like people are up and about Carlton's back it's like it's been disgusting it was an impressive second quarter but tell you what the Suns made it, made it easy for them but hey, just, just to, I just wanted to give a shout out to one of the, one of the players Brody Kemp in the last been uh, good yeah so he came into the side round seven he's, he's sixth in the comp for intercept marks per game a young player I find intercept marks is one of those ones that if you do that early on it's one of those thing, one of those skills or traits that you just continue on you, you, you sort of don't lose your ability to intercept mark and you only get more confident at it it also so I, shows how well you read the game. Like, yeah, and it, it's you know big call, but two or three years time, if Brody Kemp keeps going the way he is, he's he's got that Tom Stewart look about him. Like he he he's got the confidence to sort of know where everyone else is standing, read the right play, and make the right decision. So, yeah, it, it's a big call. But I just look at, at I look at Brody Kemp. He was a very highly rated midfielder as a sixteen year old. One of, you know almost a top five pick when he was in when he was at sixteen years old, and he had a few injuries later on. 
I questioned why he was playing down back, but I can see it now. He's mm. got that game knowledge and that confidence in his in his skills to be able to do that. Been very good mm. since he's come in. Just a quick one on that game. Shout out to uh, AFL Scoragami on Twitter. The six. Six six thousand five hundred and seventy fourth unique score in VFL AFL history. Carlton one twenty, Gold Coast sixty one. First time that score has ever happened. I've never thought about that unique scores before. There you go. Six thousand though. That's a lot of six thousand five hundred and seventy four. Eventually got that out. But yeah, one hundred and twenty to sixty one doesn't sound like has a that been, ridiculous. I've noticed that site in the last month or so. Has that been around before though? It's been around for a while, but yeah, I haven't I've, seen I've many seen, this yeah, year. Maybe that's the first unique score of the year. No, no, there's been a few. There was this a, year. Yeah, there was one week there was like two or three unique scores, and oh, really? that's when I first started to see it. Oh, yeah. there you go. Good stuff. Uh, the Dogs twenty one point winners over the Kangas, but North weren't disgraced. Yeah, so I looked at North exactly. They, they you got to start somewhere. And North, I think, are starting at the inside, the clearances, just trying to sort of get their hands to the ball first. So they scored 50 points from clearances, which was pretty good. Um, but again, I think there was so much sort of focus on just doing the hard stuff that they just got completely outplayed outside of it. So 36 inside 50s, the Dogs had... You know, 36 more inside 50s, Bulldogs had the North Melbourne. That's the second biggest differential in any game this season. Uh, but then you look at all the other stats. So they were plus 15 for contested possession, plus 13 for ground ball, plus 28 for tackles, plus is, 14 the, shots a goal. No, this is all Bulldogs. So oh. it was a typical Bulldog game. Yeah. Bulldogs Bulldogs always have fat numbers. They, they're great stats side. They always mm. have high numbers of 30s and sort of get the, get the job done. But as I said, they had plus 14 shots a goal. They, it was sort of, you know, a, a bit of a domination in general play by the Bulldogs. But yeah, North sort of, as I said, the 50 points from clearances helped them. I mean... I think they were negative four from the clearances. They didn't, they didn't even win more clearances than the Bulldogs, but they were able to score from that, which made it, I think, just... It's one part of the game that they're working on, but it also probably helped, made, made them look a little bit better in that game than they really were. We spoke last week after... Was it last week? Taylor Walker's... Was that last week or two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. Yeah. Time flies. Mm. Uh, the milestone games, though. Players who play well in milestone games. We saw Cody Waitman kick a career-high six in his 50th game. It's very good. I can't imagine too many players have kicked six in their... In, such a yeah. Well, I didn't use fifty as a from him. Um, and quick plug: I'm doing a bit of a deep dive on on Waitman and and how he sort of is tracking through fifty games compared to some of the other games. Great small forwards, both currently playing and um, sort of of yesteryear as well. And it's it's pretty remarkable his numbers. He's been very good for the dogs, and you can obviously read that. Uh, on our website tomorrow. Getting into red time now, sponsored by Subway. Uh, I think I have one for you, Mr. Barker. You do. Justified hype or hyperbole is the segment, if you can just not cut me off again straight. <laughs> get, hit me. Geelong and Sydney, out of the eight right now, as we spoke about before, both uh, finalists from last year, obviously. Will both of them miss finals? I think that's the first time in about 50 years that could happen. Yeah, we spoke about it before, and I think they both do miss I haven't taken a good look at what their run home is but obviously I don't think Sydney are making it they're in the bottom four at the moment which is remarkable to, to think about um, I know they've had their injury issues but I can't see them making it and the Cats they've got a pretty good run home I know they've got a lot of games at GMHBA to come but I just don't think six they're games. scraping it well, six games at GMHBA and they could probably win those get to 12 wins but I don't know if that's going to be enough this year it could be I think Richmond will jump in and I think one of us and North St Kilda will Will drop out, so I'm going to oh, say that the hype, the hype is justified. Geelong and Sydney, last year's grand finalists, will both miss the grand final. Back to you, Jake. Grand final or fi- you're saying finals? They'll miss finals. Period. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, Geelong making it. For One sure. for you. Nick Larky will win the Coleman Medal. 
Oh, that's just ridiculous. He's been good, no doubt about it. I mean, every week we change our opinion on who's going to win the the Coleman medal. We had Jeremy Cameron kicking 100, and then Charlie Kerner kicked 9 against West Coast, and then he was the favourite. Taylor Walker kicked 10, and he jumped up the, the leaderboard. Larky's been very good in a team that, you know, it's kind of like Oscar Allen. They're two, two forwards that are taking their opportunities uh, from limited opportunities. Um, but no, I don't think he will win. The other one that I kind of want to give a mention to is Toby Green. Like We're, mm. we're always asked the question, when is a non-key forward um, going to win the Coleman medal? And if there was any non-key forward that really kind of it feels like a key forward, it is Toby Green. So I don't know whether you can count him as, as one or not. But he's kicked 36 goals. He's six off the lead. He's missed two games. You know, you give him... He's averaging three goals a game. He could very easily be leading tied leader for the Coleman right now through 14 rounds. So, I think it just goes to show how good his season's going. It'd be a remarkable story if either one of those two actually do get up and win it. It'd be good to see a, a non-key forward actually win the Coleman too. Uh, Christian, last one for you. Ken Hinckley's ongoing contract situation will derail Port's chance at a premiership. Uh, I can't buy into that at all. I I, I think a lot. I know of this, you're the wrong person to ask because yeah, you tipped him for the flag last year. Butters for the brown though. Yeah, no, I was just. I'm always just one year ahead. Um, <laughs> I, I I feel like this is just media driven. I think the media talk it oh, a lot is, more. Though, of, yeah. I know exactly. It's probably an obvious thing to say, but the club has that. It's stuck real fat. though. In March, they said they will look at it in August. Yep. They are going to stick to that, but everyone's just going to keep asking them the question. Going to keep. Trying to put out quote, Koshy said this, Hinkley said this, so then Koshy will read that, and Hinkley, like, it's it's all being played through the media by the media. Hopefully, Port are strong enough just to, as I said, stick fat that the way they're going, you know, can you imagine if they win another nine games in a row going into finals, they're on an 18 game winning streak? I don't think the coach's contract or not having a contract can derail a team that's going that well. That's true, mm. but can you also imagine if they were on an 18 game winning streak going into finals and they got bounced out in straight sets or they lost a fourth yeah, but, prelim but under Hinkley the, the, I, that's a fair, different question altogether yeah. it's just, is this contract court going to have any impact on them playing finals so if they don't sign if they sign Ken Hinkley in August or don't sign Ken Hinkley in August shouldn't make a difference to how they play in finals to me yeah that's true but it's it's kind of like if you're Ken Hinkley as great as Port's going this year there's still no job security he's got no job security right now and nobody knows what's going to happen if, if well his contract if, expires if, and if, a smart manager would be putting him in contact with a lot of other well this other is clubs. the thing so if Port as good as Port have been this year and, and as the expectation is now high if Port don't win the premiership whether it's fair or not people will say well they've failed again and, and you know it's another season that they haven't won a premiership and it potentially it could be a fourth prelim loss under Hinkley do you sort of say if you're Hinkley and his manager do you sort of look at it and say there's there is risk by staying here. Do do we look now for another option while his stocks are at an all time high? Mm. Interesting to watch that one unfold throughout the year. Uh, wrapping things up though, it's been a good potty. Thanks for having me on, gents. Uh, Christian, thanks for coming in. Jake as well. Obviously, everyone to you at home. Don't forget to put your tips in, and we'll speak to you on the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.